Open in your Bibles uh, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 5. It's good to see so many people's faces back from the holiday. Um, It's good to be with you all together to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ today. Um, So we're going to find ourselves in uh, Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 through uh, chapter 6 and verse 7. So we'll be spilling into two different chapters, though it's not uh, nearly as many verses as we covered last time. Make it right. That's the title of the sermon. Make it right. I was uh, in my first year of college. I was living with mom and dad and uh, commuting to Wayne State. And I had just uh, recently started up golf. I was terrible at it, but I enjoyed it. And uh, you know how college schedules go. Sometimes you're done at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And so I would always have this uh, uh, desire to run home, grab my golf clubs, and go to the you know, little municipal golf course by our house. Well, one day, uh, we woke up to discover somebody had broken into our garage and they had stolen, among other things, you're never gonna guess, my golf clubs. I was so mad. I I mean, to have somebody take something that belongs to you, I mean, it's really a gut punch. I mean, especially if it's something that you really like and you use all the time, for somebody to come and steal it from you, I mean, wow, I just, I, I couldn't get my mind around somebody wanting to do that. You know, we made a police report. The thief was never caught. My golf clubs were never returned to me. And so whoever took them, they were never held to account. In the world of statistics, this is known as a property crime. You know, there's all different kinds of crime. This is a property crime. In the United States, there are some 6.5 million property crimes reported every year. And that's only the intentional criminal kinds. Losses that come from things like armed robbery or shoplifting or defrauding somebody out of their their possessions. It doesn't even include uh, negligent damages that happens, like when somebody doesn't mean to harm something that you own, uh, maybe something like a traffic accident. Whether property damage is criminal or not, the idea of someone making restitution for the loss they caused is an ancient principle. This idea of restitution, making it right. In fact, it's so ancient that it has always been inside of the people God has made. He's placed this, uh, this, this, th- what, this desire for justice within us, this, 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 this desire for, for right and wrong and, and the values and, and making things right when things are wronged. God has put that within us. And justice requires restitution taking place when someone hurts someone else, when somebody causes loss to someone else, like depriving them of the value of their nice, not-dented car or completely taking someone's golf clubs or something else. Restitution is making reparations. Reparations is just a long word for to repair, right? It's restoring a person to the position they were in before you caused them damage. In short, it's making things right. This is is one of the basic building blocks for every just society, but particularly a society that, that, that calls itself a community of faith, a community that places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a community that wants to reflect the goodness of God. And so it should come as no surprise to us that God included this particular offering that we're going to look at today in Israel's sacrificial system. English Bibles uniformly refer to it as the guilt offering. But the logic of our passage today presents it really with the meaning of a restitution offering or a reparation offering or an offering designed to make things right. 
And that's the case whether you've wronged the Lord or a person, a neighbor. Last week, we looked at the sin offering, which, which was brought when someone needed to, needed to purify the contamination brought by sin. Remember, I called it clean it up, right? Today, it's make it right. Last week was clean it up. So the sin offering was a, a, an offering to purify yourself because you've become contaminated by your sin. You've become unclean, unfit for worship. And you needed to clean yourself up. And, and some of that offering was also used to clean up the actual uh, 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 sanctuary, the, the tabernacle and the altar and the like, so that God would return to a place that was unclean but now is purified so that he could dwell with his people and receive their sacrifices. That was the sin offering. It came because people needed to be cleaned up. Today we turn to a closely related offering that sin necessitates. Not a need to be purified, but rather a need to make things right. And that's what I want you to be thinking about, this idea. Also, appreciate the fact that our sin brings many, many needs. It brings much damage. And so we have to kind of handle all of these different slivers that these sacrifices represent. So turn your attention to uh, God's Word now, Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 14. Um, I'm going to read it for you. You know, we, I always try to emphasize to you that this is God's Word. He speaks to us through this Word. And I wonder if you are, uh, are, if you are approaching this with an expectation that He will speak to you. With anticipation that He will do some miraculous work in you. Have that in your minds, friends. Pay particular attention as we read God's Word now. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of, uh, in any of all the things that people do and sin there, thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty." I never got those clubs back, and I certainly never got those clubs back plus 20%. Did you get the pattern of that, that passage? Here's the theme that I'm going to try to convince you of, develop from the text, from these pieces that we just read all together. It hurts to make things right, but it's the right kind of hurt. It hurts to make things right, but it's the right kind of hurt. Okay, imagine you are, 
shopping with your wife, men, for an for for anniversary ring in a local jewelry store. And you know what it looks like, all those display cases and all the rings and bracelets and whatever. And you're trying to describe to the sales clerk there the kind of ring you're looking at or looking for. And, you know, the, the person will bring several different rings out and, you know, your wife's trying them on and, and it, you kind of narrow it down to two. And, uh, and so the clerk is putting back all the ones that you don't want. Your wife has the one ring on, she's kind of admiring it, while the, the alternative one is sitting there, and you instinctively grab that ring and put it on your pinky because you don't want the clerk to take that one away because we're still deciding between these two. Your wife says, I want to think about it, takes the ring off, gives it to the clerk, the clerk puts it away, you leave. Except you've got that other ring still on your pinky finger you've forgotten about. You don't realize it until you get home. And then you get this great idea when you get home. I don't have to buy a ring now. Right? What might happen? What might be the consequences of that property crime? Well, the, the jewelry store owner is out whatever the profit of that ring is. Let's, say, let's call it a thousand bucks. And the sales clerk, after the inventory is done, loses her job. When you take things that don't belong to you, it harms other people, right? And so I want you to kind of maybe remember this little, this little illustration I've given to you as we walk through this passage. There's two different people that are being harmed that's being described in our passage. The store owner, God, the owner. The sales clerk, your neighbor somebody that's under God. Okay, so try to, maybe that's a way you can keep track of this text a little bit. Think of the store owner as the Lord, the salesperson as your neighbor. And as we examine the biblical text today, we'll first look at what wrongs are done that bring about the guilt offering. What kind of wrongs are done to the Lord? What kind of wrongs are done to neighbor that would bring about guilt? We're going to look at what those wrongs are first off, and then we'll look at how the guilt offering was the way for Israelites to repair those wrongs, to make those wrongs right. So remember our theme. The guilt offering teaches us today it hurts to make things right, but it's the right kind of hurt. So let's get going. We're, we'll start with the wrong that gives rise to the guilt offering. <clears throat> First, we focus on wrongs done to the Lord. And there's actually two different situations that, that Moses uh, anticipates here, two different kinds of sins that are described. First, there's the situation, verse 15, when anyone sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. Well, well what does that mean? What are the holy things of the Lord and how might one sin against them? Well, you might think, well, there's a lot of holy things in the sacrificial system, right? I mean, think of what, what's inside the tabernacle, for instance. There's some holy furniture there. There's a, there's a little altar of incense that's holy to the Lord. And, and there's a holy table with holy showbread sitting on it. And, and, and the, only the priests, the ordained priests, the sanctified priests are allowed to go in there and minister to the Lord. It's just really a handful of people um, that are allowed in there. The, the laity, the, the, the great weight of the people of Israel aren't allowed in there. They're not allowed to go in there, much less touch any of those holy things. Is that what Moses is saying here? Is that what he's describing? Sinning against the holy things of the Lord? Well, it's difficult to imagine that that's what he meant because this is an unintentional sin, verse 15 says, right? How would you unintentionally go into the tabernacle? What do you, like stumble in there? And then you wake up and put your hand on the table of the showbread to like get yourself up. Oh, I didn't mean to touch. It's difficult to imagine that that's what he was talking about. But it's easy enough, I think, if we were just paying attention, as we've been looking in Leviticus, to know what holy things he's referencing. Holy things, he mentions again and again in relation to the sacrifices. 
So most of the grain offering was dedicated to the priests, you may remember. Remember they took sort of a memorial sort of portion, burned it on the incense altar, and then they got the rest. You remember that? Well, in, in, uh, in chapter 2, in verses 3 and verse 10, that part that goes to the priest is described with this, these words, a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. And then again, the word, while the word holy isn't explicitly used in chapter 1 for the burnt offering, the whole animal was to be burnt for the Lord. And so while it isn't called a holy food offering, that idea is certainly there. Only God gets that. That's a, a holy food offering. And you may remember in chapter 3, uh, all that language, it was repeated again and again and again about taking all of the fat out of the animal. Remember? It was, uh, it was rough to read and rough to listen to at parts because there was so much repetition of it. But, but there was that, that declaration in chapter 3 in verses 16 and 17 uh, that the fat of every offering was given to the Lord only a holy part of those sacrifices. So perhaps an Israelite might have unintentionally sinned with respect to those holy parts of the sacrifice. You can imagine, for example, them not meaning to, but, but not giving the priest all of their share of the grain offering, for example. Or an animal brought for the burnt offering could have had a defect that the worshiper wasn't aware of, but that the priest discovered. Or a man wasn't careful to cut the fat from the peace offering down to wherever it was they were supposed to cut it down to. I mean, I imagine myself trying to do that, and I'm sure I would unintentionally screw that up. Or maybe a man was simply lazy about bringing sacrifices at the appropriate time for purification, for example. Maybe having their consciences, um, you know, uh, burdened about it, but then sort of sweeping it under the rug, as we often do. Doing such things, friends, is defrauding the Lord of what was his. Even though they were done unintentionally. It would be defrauding the Lord of what was his. Though he might not have intended to do so, a man could withhold from the Lord what the Lord was due. He could defraud God in either his formal worship at the tabernacle and these holy things, but also a man could sin in his informal worship of the Lord in simply how he lived his life. And that's that next, uh, that's that next section. This second kind of sin is a very broad category. Notice how it's described there in verse 17. Look down at the book again. This is the second kind of sin he's describing, but to the Lord. The first one's sinning against the Lord in the holy things, now sinning against the Lord in his uh, breaking his commandments. If anyone sins doing any of the things, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, that's a big category, though he did not know it, and then it goes on. The commandments of the Lord are the requirements of those who live in covenant with him. If you're going to be God's people, this is the laws of God's people. You're going to be in the covenant. These are the covenant requirements, right? They are, they are to obey his commands because of who he is to them. He is the Lord of the covenant. He is their deliverer. He is their redeemer. Forty-nine times in the book, in this book of Leviticus, the Lord's identity is connected to what he requires of his people. 49 times there is this juxtaposition, these things that are brought next to each other. The Lord's identity and what he requires of his people. I'll just read two of them. Chapter 11, verse 45. Listen for the two parts. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see how they're next to each other? I'm the Lord your God that delivered you. Be holy. Because I'm holy. You're one of mine. He says it in a little different way in chapter 18 and verse 4. There was 49 to pick from, by the way. Right? 18 and verse 4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. That's why. To sin against the Lord's requirements for his holy people... 
That is for them to live like they are not his people. It was to harm God's reputation among the nations. It was to communicate that God's salvation and the covenant promises he makes to his people are no different than what the false gods do. And you can see then why God's words and God's holy uh, entitlements and sacrifices rise to the same level. The same logic about this connection between the identity of who God is and why you should obey him, this same logic is found in the New Testament everywhere. What is the motivation to live like a Christian? Because Christ saved you from your sins. Listen to Ephesians 4, 32, spilling into uh, Ephesians 5. Listen for the logic now. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you hear the logic? Forgive people because God forgave you in Christ. Imitate him because Christ gave himself up for, for, for you. So give yourself up for others. You see the logic? This is who God is to you. Therefore, act this way. That's the, that's the pattern that we see in Leviticus. And so to violate the Lord's commands then is to strike a blow to who you think God is. And people notice. The nations see it. In our text, you are to obey God because of who he is and who you are in relation to him. When you fail, you sin against his holy name. You fail to reflect his name, his holy character to the world. This gives rise to the need for a guilt offering. It should bother God's people when they behave this way. In Christ, we too are to live lives that reflect the Lord's covenant love towards us. Again, Ephesians 4 and verse 1 this time. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1.10, Paul prayed that God would enable his friends to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see it? The Lord wants his people wholly devoted to him, living out all of the aspects of their lives for him, living in the goodness of the covenant, worshiping and living in submission to his holy rules that, by the way, are for your good. He calls his people to give him what he is due in terms of, of worship and also in terms of practical obedience. Practical obedience in areas of moral uprightness, honoring one's parents, providing for the needy, and many, many other facets of our lives. To fail in any of these areas thus defrauds him of what is rightfully his. Are you, are you, are you holding on to that idea? That, that, when you, that when you breach one of his worship rules against the holy things, when you breach one of his, you should live like this because you're mine rules, you take something from him. You take something that belongs to him. His honor, his reputation, his goodness that was, was given for you. That's why in verse 14... Such sin is called a breach of faith. Leviticus 20 and verse 8 says, Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm the one that makes you holy. So when you don't act holy, it's a breach of faith. You've stopped trusting me. And so just as I gave the illustration of defrauding a store owner and the salesperson, our text speaks of defrauding God and his people, necessitating the guilt offering. Now, we've just dealt with, with defrauding God there, right? Both instances of wronging God are unintentional, whether concerning his holy things or his holy commandments. But now we turn to sin of wronging other people, the, the jewelry salesperson, if you will. Look at chapter 6 
and verse 1. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. That's how that starts. In the, in the ensuing uh, verses, five categories of sin against neighbor are listed, all in the, these categories of property crimes, if you will all of which initially sound like intentional sins against another, all in the areas of defrauding them of their property. Perhaps surprisingly, these offenses are described with the same gravity as those against the Lord. They, they, they're described in ways that rise to this same level of, of, of trespass in terms of guilt. Did you see it in verse 1? Look at it carefully. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. You see the phrasing there? In other words, love God, love neighbor. It's set up that way. Don't sin against God. Don't sin against neighbor. Right? This is the whole of the law, Jesus would say. Right? To, to honor the Lord God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and to treat your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so our text is set up in that way. Moses reveals God's heart to his people by saying, don't breach your faith in me by sinning against me or sinning against those who are mine. You see the, the logic there, the beautiful gospel logic? Wronging someone else in the faith community, whether it was through deception or returning something given in security, or, or not returning something given in security, or outright oppression or robbery or any of these things, it was an offense against the Lord who redeemed those people as well as you. Every individual member of God's people is valuable and bears his name. To sin against them, then, was to sin against the Lord. It's the same logic Paul used when warning mature Christians about disputable matters and, and, and being careful not to be unloving towards weaker brothers. You remember 1 Corinthians 8 with the idle meat uh, passage, right? Listen to it again, verses 11 and 12 of that chapter. By your knowledge... This weak person is destroyed. What's the weak person? This is the next phrase that describes him. The brother for whom Christ died. You're going to take your liberty and unlovingly, you know, apply it to the harm of somebody that Jesus died for. That's what you're going to do? You see the logic there? Christ dies for someone, that person's in Christ. If I take it out on Larry, I'm taking it out on the Lord. You, you see, the, you see what, what, what Moses is trying to describe here? The Lord God bought his people, redeemed them from Egypt, placed his holy name on them, gave them a land in which he would dwell there with them and gave them holy rules to live by and worship him by. He also gave them each other. He saved them and made them a people, a holy people, to live together in ways that honor God, in whom they had placed their trust. Have you ever thought about sinning against your brothers and sisters in such serious terms? Have you? And we wrong each other all the time. You ever think about the, 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 just the sober nature that, that sins against neighbor are described? What insight that gives to Christ's command to reconcile with your brother before bringing your worship to the Lord? Matthew 5. Maybe you should start thinking about communion that's right around the corner here. Maybe there's somebody you need to make things right with. It also makes so much sense how serious the Lord condemns things like slandering other people and sowing dissension in the church. 
Oh, how we need to cultivate a sensitivity of spirit when it comes to treating our neighbor, our brother, as the Lord's own. Okay, so we've looked at the wrong that the guilt offering gives rise to. Whether it's wrong to the Lord in the holy things or his other commandments, or to our neighbor. Now let's turn to the next piece. You remember the theme, right? It hurts to make things right, but it's the right kind of hurt. Well, here's where we get into it. Let's, let's look at how the guilt offering teaches us how to make things right when we sin against God or our neighbor. It helps to think about what damage these breaches of trust cause. They bring guilt to the sinner, and they, they take something, they harm the person sinned against. Right? So there's kind of two two parts of the hurt that, that's brought about by sin. When you sin, you hurt yourself. You bring guilt upon yourself, right? You, 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 it, it bothers you. If you have a conscience and the Spirit of God living within you, it bothers you. And it also bothers other people because you have caused them loss. Well, as the common name for the offering implies, we do damage ourselves when we sin against others. Following God's good commands is good for us. His covenant rules are designed for our happiness. It's it's designed for human flourishing. Adam and Eve would have lived forever in perfect harmony with God, but they sinned. They rejected God's good commands. And just as they experienced guilt that they tried to cover with fig leaves, we too feel the shame of defrauding the Lord and others as well. Oftentimes we try to cover that shame in ways that will never work. The word guilt shows up ten times in this short text. Listen to a few of them. Multiple times we read of someone realizing their guilt. Verse 17, look at it there. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. That, that, same, that same kind of uh, uh, description is in verse 19, and then again in chapter 6, verses 4 and verse 5. When one realizes what they've done... When God's people realize the dishonor, the iniquity of their behavior, not only do they understand that they are guilty, like in a legal way, right? But they also begin to feel the weight of the guilt and perhaps fear the punishment that's coming as well. So it's the, the guilt of just knowing you've done wrong through that dishonoring act, through taking what isn't yours, Right? But it's also, it's also that, 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 that weight of the guilt. Oftentimes people confess of crimes that the police would have never discovered because they can't live with the guilt. And so the first way to make things right is to bring an animal to the Lord as a guilt offering. That, remember, this is a different age, and it's making the way for Christ. And God, through the generations, is teaching the people how to think. So the first way to make things right is to bring a a sacrifice to the Lord as a guilt offering. But it had to be of a sufficiently high value. Not merely the best ram available to you, but it had to be a ram worth a certain amount of silver shekels that would likely be set from time to time by the priests. It had to be a sufficiently high-valued sacrifice. The cost of such a ram probably would have been a strain on a family's budget, particularly if this offering was being brought again and again. It hurts to make things right, but it's the right kind of hurt. Guilt has to be removed. People can't live under it. The text says the ram was the Lord's compensation. It's in verse 15 and chapter 5 and verse 6. 
It was his compensation. It was the cost of removing the guilt. It was what was due. The cost of the life of a perfect, highly prized substitute in order to take the guilt away. We've seen this many times now with the other offerings, this idea of atonement through the, through the death of another. But here we consider a sacrifice that takes guilt away. Faith in the death of another to remove guilt. That's what God was teaching his people, millions of his people. Generation after generation, as dad taught son and daughter the meaning of the guilt offering, the relief that came from believing what God promised, that the punishment and even feeling of guilt would be covered by a ram's blood. Forgiveness would come through the giving of another perfect life, another's perfect life. Guilt of sin removed. This had been established in the minds of the Jews as the guilt offerings went to the tabernacle again and again. And into that consciousness, friends, after hundreds of years of silence from the Lord, a prophet came, John the Baptist. And into that consciousness, he would declare this as he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, takes it away, removes the guilt and shame. Imagine. A sacrifice that is God the Son. The only guilt offering that would ever have to be brought to God. The only death that would ever have to come that would free his people from the guilt of sin. From the weight of the shame of sin. You know, but John said something else. Matthew records it for us. He had all of these people coming out of the city to be baptized, right? For, for the repentance of their sins, to prepare the way for the Lord, for their salvation. And a lot of the religious leaders came out to see what was going on and, 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 and joined in. And John rebuked them and said this in Matthew 3 in verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just say you're repenting. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then he says in verse 10, Every tree that does not bear good fruit, that is the fruit of repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is not a ritual. This is not empty. To have the guilt removed required genuine repentance. And genuine repentance looks like something. Yeah, I remember years ago, I had a client who hired me to form a, a little corporation for him. And, uh, and I was supposed to file a tax form within the certain, I can't remember the first so many days of the year. And I had filed a form like this a hundred times before, and I forgot to file it for him. And because of that, his tax liability for that corporation was higher than if I would have simply filed this form. By God's grace, I was a young Christian. I went to him and confessed what I had done. And this, God gets the credit for this. I don't know where this came from. But I said to him, you figure out, you have your CPA figure out what the difference between your tax liability this year is and what it would have been if, if, I, wouldn't have, if I would have filed the form and I'll pay the difference. I'm not, trying to, I'm not saying that to exalt myself. I'm just saying that's what fruits of repentance look like. I have failed many, many times to show fruits of repentance. But by God's grace, I got it right that one time. And, and that's what we see in the guilt offering. This idea that it hurts to make things right. It hurt to come up with that money for that guy. I was just getting started. I didn't have much in the, in the tank. It hurts to make things right, but it's the right kind of hurt. It honors the Lord. It makes, makes things right. Turning from your sin and, in, and enjoying God's forgiveness is worth whatever you have to give up. Because without that heart posture, repentance isn't real, and God knows it. 
God knows what your heart truly is. He doesn't forgive sin when we don't really turn from it. That's why it's important to be real about your sin and about how you hurt other people. Friends, don't make excuses for your sin. Oh, how husbands and wives, Courtney and me among, among them, need to learn this lesson over and over again. Don't offer non-apology apologies. They're worthless. I'm sorry if you were hurt by what I said, but I didn't mean anything by it. That's, that's not admitting your, your sin. That's trying to brush it away. Like it was really the other person's fault for getting offended. Right? Or, I'm sorry, but I've really been going through a lot lately. I'm really stressed out because of work. I haven't been feeling well, etc. There, there's no excuses for sins. Just own them. Confess them. And whatever that costs, it's the right kind of hurt. It makes things right. Own your wrongdoing. Admit it. Seek forgiveness. And, and if you've embarrassed someone in front of other people, then make that apology in front of other people. If, you, if, you've, if you've defrauded somebody of something, or, you, or you've broke something of someone else's, make it right. Make those people whole again if it's possible. Making it right means be willing to make restitution. Restoring the, the person to the place that they were before you wronged them. If you damage someone's property, pay for its repair. These are the sorts of things we need to do. Steal credit from someone else. Steal credit for someone else's idea. Make that right and give them the credit. But here's something even more. The Lord knows how to weigh a man's heart to judge whether repentance is genuine or not. And he really ups the ante here. And so there is a requirement with the guilt offering of not just reversing the damage your sin caused, not just making restitution, but adding to it. Look at verse 16. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and, you see it there, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priests. To a neighbor a man wrongs, next chapter, verse 5, the requirement is repeated. He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. costs something, doesn't it, to make things right? That little guy up in the tree that I keep calling Nicodemus, but is... Huh? Zacchaeus. I know who they are, okay? I was just mixed up a little. You remember what Zacchaeus did to show his repentance? Paid people back in multiples of how much he defrauded them. Are you carrying guilt for how you have kept back from the Lord what he is due? Listen in now. I'm asking you questions. Are you carrying guilt right now because you've been holding back something that, that is the Lord's, that is due him? Have you been lazy or miserly about giving to him your financial offerings, your time, your service to him? He bought you. He owns you. The Spirit of God has given you gifts. He has resourced you. It's all His. Are you honoring Him? Have you become aware of how you have wronged somebody, but you've been ignoring it? Ah, it was a little while ago now. He probably doesn't even remember. You're trying to cover the guilt by trying to justify your behavior? tear somebody else down? It's never too late to turn from your sin and ask God to remove the shame of it. Chapter 6 and verse 5 says to do this when he realizes his guilt. Doesn't matter when. Not making things right distances you from God and from neighbor. You can be all alone and paint a picture like everything's okay. 
but you're lonely. You're far from God and far from God's people. And that's not, that's not how we're supposed to live. It's not for our good to live that way. So make it right. Repent of your sin. Turn to God and ask him to take the guilt away. And guess what? Christ has already made that possible. You need only ask for forgiveness and you get it. You need only trust in Christ's sacrifice, that guilt sacrifice on your behalf again this day, and you'll be free of that guilt. We read in Romans of the freedom found in Christ on this very point. Just after chapter 7, I think last week I talked about it. Chapter 7, the, the second half of the chapter, is that wrestling with, you know, the desire to do right and the desire to sin, right? My spirit wants to follow the, the God's law, and my, my, the, the sin nature in my flesh wants to do the other, wants to violate it, right? Just after that wrestling that Paul describes, we turn to chapter 8 and verse 1, and this glorious truth is put before us. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We all have that struggle. Guilt comes. But for those who are hidden in Christ, there's no condemnation coming. There's no fear of punishment coming. There's no, there's no need to bear that guilt. Jesus has already bore it. We need only turn to him again and repent and be freed. Freed of the guilt. What do you need to be freed of today, friends? This is something that, should be, that we should be doing over and over again. What is the Spirit of God calling you to do today? How do you need to make things right? And maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've thought about sin, you feel bad about it, but man, you don't do anything about it because you don't want anybody to know about it. Guess what? God knows about it. And judgment's coming. You will be made to pay the account. You will be called to make it right, but it will take all of your days into eternity under his suffering. That's the only way to right the ship. Unless, unless you give your life to Christ. Unless you turn to him in repentant faith, turn away from your sin, abandon it, and place your faith in Jesus Christ who died in your place to pay for your sin and remove your guilt. That's an important thing. It's the most important thing. So turn in faith to Christ today. Well, we're about to celebrate the Lord's table. So let's take a few moments of quiet reflection over these truths. As you do, I'll just remind you that if this passage hasn't convinced you, you of it, let me remind you that we need to be honest and humble people. And that means if you're not in Christ today, don't participate in the Lord's table that's about to be distributed. It's real. It means something. Christ communes with his people in this. And maybe you're struggling about whether or not you are a Christian. Think about John's call to show fruits of repentance. Does your life look different? Is your life devoted to Christ? Or is it just something that is just a little part of your life? That will help you to make that determination. So take just a few moments of quiet reflection. Think about, friends, if you need to make things right with somebody. Cry out to Christ.
Okay, as the men come forward to distribute the elements, I want us to consider how the death of Jesus Christ made things right for all who turned to him in faith. How he made things right for us. He is the Lord's just compensation to cover your sins and remove your guilt. It was what was necessary to forgive your sins, Christ's death. And what's more, he is restitution for your sins and much more. God was made whole from the way you damaged him and dishonored him again and again with your life. Christ's death made him whole, made God whole and more. Consider this as we um, participate in the elements. Thanks, fellas.